Ladies, gentlemen, children of all ages, eldritch horrors of indeterminate age, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I am your host, Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. Oh, I've got a wee park and a wee dinosaur. Or whatever it is he says. <laughs> Again, answers on a Twitter postcard. <laughs> and a returning champion, Drew Tavendale. Hola! Our European peace envoy is back. How goes the work in France? Well, has there been a war in Europe in the last few months? No, no. there hasn't. Then you're welcome. <laughs> but now that you're here, does that mean that a war's going to start? Oh no. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> no. There's been no war that we've read of, which only means that your work as a media tycoon <laughs> has been successful. So we have a, a good old bunch of films to be talking at you about today, so we'll kick off with a look at Bloodfather. Mm. Craig, that's your wheelhouse, isn't it? Uh, a worse man than I once famously said, f***ing Jews. The Jews are <laughs> responsible for all the wars in the world. Are you a Jew? That man was Mel Gibson. Unfortunately for Mel Gibson, he chose to broadcast his anti-Semitic opinions loudly out the window of a car which he was driving after drinking, directly into the face of a sheriff's deputy, who was a Jew. Mel Gibson is a dick, and yet his influence across some three decades plus of filmmaking up to that eventful night in 2006, 2006, 10 years already, is undeniable. The road to recovery for Gibson has been fraught with many false starts and setbacks, not least of all allegations of domestic abuse and child endangerment in 2010. He's he's, he's racking up those bingo numbers, man. But there has latterly been a call for Gibson to be granted a reprieve. Increasingly so now that his first directorial effort in a decade, Hacksaw Ridge, is gathering Oscar talk. Regardless of your opinions of the man and his roles as father, husband, partner and, let's say, Catholic ambassador, it's hard to deny that his career as actor and director has really been anything other than compelling and engaging, imbued as he is with no small amount of charisma and everyman appeal. Assuming, of course, that every man is a racist, alcoholic bigot with $400 million in the bank. <laughs> it is equal parts comforting and infuriating, then, that Bloodfather, the latest film from Mezrin Parts 1 and 2 director Jean-Francois Richet, goes some way to reminding us why it is Gibson still makes a compelling case for cinematic, if not social, clemency. Taking at least a couple of cues from 2012's Get the Gringo, a.k.a. How I Spent My Summer Vacation. <laughs> Do you remember that one? Because I don't, and I saw it. <laughs> Bloodfather sees Gibson channeling his inner recovering alcoholic, ex-con divorcee, as the character of Link, in what one presumes must have felt at least partly like a catharsis on his part. Estranged from his daughter Lydia, who he tells his recovery group he only ever sees on the backs of milk cartons, Lynx is taken aback to receive a call from the teenager in a state of distress. As we witness in the film's opening act, Lydia has killed her drug-dealing boyfriend Jonah, Diego Luna, a vague relation of a prominent Mexican cartel boss, and she needs a couple of grand to make herself scarce while the heat wears off. Link duly obliges, but as his befuddled attempt at reconciliation with his daughter begins to look more like a rehab intervention in the wake of her own rampant drug abuse, the pair learn that Lydia's ex-boyfriend is in fact alive, and that he has unleashed a rather scary Sicario upon the teen, in the hopes of hushing her before the cartel catch wind of a scheme which has seen Jonah skimming money from them. What follows is a predictable enough sortie through the barren highways and motels of the Tex-Mex border states, with plenty of beard trimming, hair dyeing and soul searching amidst the sporadic outbursts of gunfire. Bar one ludicrously over-the-top attack on a trailer park by the drug pushers, <laughs> things don't ever reach the bafflingly inane heights of dad exploitation poster child taken, and Bloodfather is both the better and the worse for it. 
While any pretense at geriatric Rambo antics are suitably downplayed, there is a feeling that something is definitely missing, and the movie's final act comes as something of an anticlimax given the kinetic promise shown earlier in the movie. Riche shows ample competency in handling the action, and there are moments where his regular cinematographer Robert Gantz adds real atmosphere to the proceedings. The cast are all uniformly fine, with solid support from Luna, as well as Erin Moriarty as Lydia, and William H. Macy as friend and AA sponsor Kirby. It's Gibson, though, who makes the biggest impact, his performance both bold and deferential in a way that would appear to belie the lessons both he and his character no doubt learned in recent years. There's none of the slapstick zaniness that was his Martin Riggs stock in trade, here instead replaced by a very real world weariness, yet there's still a very real sense of danger to Gibson, some of it possibly bleeding in from the world outside the celluloid. While things may tick over a little routinely, there is enough to make Bloodfather worth a watch, and it is far less generic and sporting of genre tropes than one might reasonably expect in these times of the Neeson cinematic universe. What lingers afterwards is that while he may well be a dick, I kind of want Mel Gibson back. Which came as no small amount of surprise to me, but uh, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe you gentlemen feel differently. Well, I mean, if we're cutting Woody Allen and Roman Polanski slack. <laughs> I going to say, yes, saying unpleasant things pales in comparison to abuse and things that other people yes. in the film industry have been involved in. For me, because, well, yes, I heard those things about Mel Gibson, but I never really read that stuff, so it doesn't tend to impact me too much. I was just like, hell yeah. Bit of a dick. He's not very pleasant, but okay. I watched this new film with him, and the thing about it is it's Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson always has had, and shows here that he still does have, charisma. And that goes an awfully long way. I'm struggling to think of anything to add to what you said, Craig, without simply repeating you. Mm. It's not most outstanding film, and it's not as entertaining as Lethal Weapon, even if maybe him not being quite so unhinged as Martin Riggs is welcome here. But it's an entirely competent film, and he's an engaging watch. And it's not the sort of film you could particularly go into depth about. So I won't. Well, it's, very, it's very slight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it well enough for a sort of little crime thriller thing that it is a slash road movie, but, but it just felt a bit like, a, you know, one of those B-movie scripts that's kind of picked up, for some reason, uh, a cast far more worthy than it deserves and a director mm. with far more flair than that's it deserves. Reasonable. Fairly standard common regarding story, but uh, the, the people in it and the people making it do seem to elevate it and give it a bit of a spark that makes it more worthy of its your time than it would have been if it was... You know, some more journeyman directors and actors. Yeah, we say a solid cast that does pretty well. I agree completely. It's a, it's a perfectly fine watch, well worth looking into, but not something that is, you know, world changing. Yes, and it certainly does, well, as I say, it's entertaining enough. It does make you wonder a little exactly why it had its world premiere at Cannes. <laughs> Not really CAD material. No. I think someone will have beaten me to this already, undoubtedly, but for, for now I'm going to feel smug because I just thought of this. Dad Max. All right. Moving on. <laughs> Swiftly, please. So we'll move on to Bridget Jones's Baby. I have, I suppose, seen the previous Bridget Jones's films. At any rate, there's a few flashbacks in this film that I looked vaguely familiar, so I suppose I've seen at least those sections of it, although I don't really have any recollection of them. So I wasn't really chomping at the bit to see this, but uh, what the hell? It is a film, and that is really the only criteria I have for viewing things these days, so... You know, I went to see it, and don't you know, it's actually not all that bad. Uh, we rejoin Bridget, played, of course, by Rennie Zellweger, on the cusp of turning 40. She's single again after splitting from Mark, played by Colin Firth, who was always too consumed by his work as a lawyer to make time for her. She's now successfully producing a current affairs programme, and has largely made her peace with being on her own. 
belied somewhat by her wistful recognition that most of her original gang of friends have drifted off into family life, and running with the young team from her workbase is tough going. However, after a run-in with Mark at Hugh Grant's funeral, or Hugh Grant's character, not actually Hugh Grant, she's feeling a little bit depressed, so her friend and work colleague Miranda, played by Sarah Solmani, resolves to cheer her up by taking her for a debauched weekend at an unnamed Glastonbury-like festival. Miranda insists that the rules dictate that Bridget must sleep with the first man she meets, which happens to be Jack, played by Patrick Dempsey, who fishes her out of the bud she inevitably immediately falls into. Now, while she doesn't instantaneously bump uglies with him, fate throws them together later in the night and several sheets to the wind, at which point the magic happens. By which I mean sex. Sex happens. They do sex in a tent. Happy to write this off as a crazy one-night stand, she wakes up and makes herself scarce before Jack can even return with a coffee and donuts, or, you know, tell her his name. Uh, She returns to her normal life, but at another social event she again runs into Mark, just separated from his wife. After a few drinks, the magic takes hold of them, Uh, by which I mean Mark inserts his penis into Bridget's vagina repeatedly until ejaculation of seminal fluid occurs. Sorry if any of this is getting too powerfully erotic for you. Some weeks later, Bridget is busy trying to deal with the management changeover at work, which sees an influx of a team of hipsters intent on turning their serious programme into BuzzFeed, but you won't believe what happens next. With this one weird trick, Bridget discovers that she's pregnant, but her two magical encounters were so close together that there's no clear candidate for the father's identity. In case you've forgotten by magical encounter, I mean that thing with a penis and vagina. Refusing an amniocentesis on the grounds that it could possibly harm the baby and would most certainly harm the plot, Bridget <laughs> somehow starts straying both Mark and Jack, who it transpires as a famous dot-com billionaire but not famous enough for Bridget to recognise, along with them both believing that they are the father. Until they eventually meet and the jape is exposed. After some adjustment, the two then attempt to passively-aggressively, to actively-aggressively, jockey for most suitable father position. Hijinks of acceptable hilarity ensue. Now, keen students of the art form of reviewing films may have noticed my use of small distractions in the prior paragraphs. That's right, all that dangerously erotic material was a trick to disguise the fact that there's not a great deal to say about Bridget Jones's baby, and there's not much point in saying even that for the third film in the franchise. Even with the gap from the second instalment, I think everyone knows what's on the cards for this film. I've never quite made my peace with the accent Zellweger is using in these films, but that aside, her comic timing and interaction with the two blokes is on point, and the supporting cast is full of, mainly, comic actors that I like a great deal, such as Joanna Scanlon, Neil Pearson, and James Callis. It's gently amusing throughout. Indeed, not much in the film is worthy of criticism, aside from an infuriating tendency in the final act of the characters, otherwise established as sensible and capable people, juggle the idiot ball like total morons in order to inject some drama into the conclusion. Admittedly, it's for comic effect, but it's still teeth-grindingly irritating. For me, at least. A fairly minor point against an otherwise perfectly acceptable comedy, albeit the one that's about as unmemorable as its predecessors, on the basis on how the few details I can remember from it, about a month removed from watching, are already fading away. I can't see this opening up the franchise to a new audience, but for those already appreciative of Bridget's charms, this will be a welcome revisitation. So yes, it sounds like it's a perfect continuation of the series then, because the first two films, like the books, are lightweight fluff, but still manage to be entertaining and funny enough to make it worth watching and or reading, and then you forget about them. Yes, it is exactly what you expect, and not a penny more. Which... Really, it's okay. There's a place for that in the world. Not everything can be Lawrence of Arabia. Not everything's the best thing you've ever seen. And not particularly for me, per se, but 
I think this sort of thing can just go into the bucket of cinematic comfort food. Yes. You know, yeah. it's not objectionable enough to really dislike. And providing that there's enough laughs, then you get on with the characters and or actors. And you can just sort of sit down, watch as a piece of light entertainment and never let it trouble you again. Precisely. And yeah, there's, a, there's absolutely a place for that. As long as it's just reasonably competently produced, that's fine. Doesn't really merit much in-depth discussion, though. No. Hmm, Craig has had to bail. Aye, just charging it so you old. In the United States, there is a law called the DREAM, Development, Relief and Education for Alien Minors Act, which allows the children of illegal immigrants who were raised in the US to gain citizenship by serving in the military. Except, of course, when it doesn't, forcing applicants to jump through all manner of hoops and still deporting more than 3,000 people after they had done their part and served in the military. It is this unfair treatment of veterans, and themes of immigration and borders in general, that prompted Iranian director Rafi Pitts and Romanian screenwriter Razvan Radulescu to collaborate on Soy Nero. Raised, but not born in, Southern California, Nero, played by Johnny Ortiz, went to school in Los Angeles until he and his family were deported from the United States to Mexico, since when he has tried many times to cross the border back into the USA. The USA, understandably, being far more home for him than Mexico. So Americanized is he, in fact, that he makes a point of calling his half-brother Jesus instead of Jesus. On his most recent attempt, he decides to take advantage of the Dream Act and become a green card soldier. While there are a number of interesting ideas in here, frontiers, violence, class, belonging. The film really isn't very interesting and when the deeper themes are explored, they're not exactly done subtly. For example, when we first see Nero, he is running from the US Border Patrol wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with the logo Enemy. Tonally, it's all over the place too. Sometimes this is intentional. For example, after leaving his brother, we are whipped to a checkpoint in the middle of the desert where Nero is now serving in the army. Alongside black soldiers, Compton and Bronx, names that the writers presumably worked for a good six or seven seconds to create. <laughs> Other times there's an extended sequence where Nero is picked up while hitchhiking by a father and his daughter, which at first seems like it will serve as a way to explore the attitudes of some US natives while allowing Nero to advocate for why he feels American, not Mexican. Which, to be fair, it does. At first. Right up until it turns out that the father's a conspiracy nut who explains to Nero that wind farms actually burn oil and that they exist to keep the axis from the earth off kilter. <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything else in the film. Other sections are more successful, notably once the story moves to the Middle East where, ironically, Nero is now tasked with guarding a border. Despite being a serving member of the military, Nero is treated with suspicion and as an outsider, the clear inference being that he will never, or will never be allowed to, fit in. Even here though, the film has issues as the two-dimensional nature of Nero's character. He is played quite well by Ortiz, who is a recently engaging presence, but the actor is given so very little to work with in the script. is highlighted and then dispensed with as for a while he becomes a secondary character in his own story as the focus moves to his comrades and the firefight they find themselves in. The desert landscapes and LA sprawl are both captured well by Greek DP Christos Karamanis' camera, his visual assuredness and style being one of the few highlights. Daniel Irabaren's sound work is another, but it's polish on an ultimately vacuous shell. 
In the end, Pitts and Radulescu have a far more interesting premise than their paper-thin story and characters can support. A pity as, in the current US political climate, and with the immigrant drum that Donald Trump in particular keeps beating, this could have been a timely and heart-hitting drama. So yeah, it's an interesting idea in there, but doesn't really go anywhere. This is the first English language collaboration between this director and screenwriter, and whether that hampered them or not, I don't know. Mm. But it's more just, oh, this is bad, and there's all these problems with immigration things, and what will we do? Uh, I don't know, we could just spend half an hour listening to two people talk about West and East Coast hip-hop. <laughs> okay. It sounds like a slender hook to hang two hours of narrative on. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. Because really nothing happens. And then that, the section I mentioned with the guy that picks him up, it starts out, he's just, he's hitchhiking. He gets picked up by this guy. And then you find out he's like a Second Amendment proponent. And then he asks, he starts asking questions like, well, why, why aren't you in your own country? Why have you come here? That Hmm. sounds absolutely legitimate. You think, right, okay, we get the characters discussing things here, and that's it does do that a little. But then, it's out of left field for no reason. You just find that he's a complete loon. <laughs> and it honestly has nothing to do with anything else, and it just distracts from the film completely. You basically spend what feels like 30 minutes, and possibly is as much as that, in the company of this character who adds nothing to the film or the character's story, and... When the rest of it is already so slender, then you just stuck this extra section in that has nothing to do with anything. It's strange. <laughs> Which brings us, sadly, to Inferno, the <laughs> latest uh, Dan Brown adaptation, basically where the whole gang gets back together. Tom Hanks, of course, returns as Robert Langdon, the professor with a, a talent for breaking down codes and such like, and his incredible knowledge of Renaissance history, which apparently is a thing that goes well together. Ron Howard returns to direct, and what he is directing is the fourth novel, the third book. Of the it was a book that they just skipped over, I guess. Perhaps that's even too bad by Dan Brown standards to make a film out of, I'm not sure. Oh, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? <laughs> In this uh, adaptation, we start off with a prologue where a mysterious fellow is being chased throughout uh, Florence, I think it was, and this guy turns out to be Bertrand Zobrist, who is played by Ben Foster. He is a multi-millionaire biotech genius. Rather than hand over secrets of unknown nature to the people chasing him, he instead decides to take a jump off the building, killing himself. We cut later to Robert Langdon waking up in a hospital, being cared for by Sienna Brooks. He has been told that he was shot at, has a grazed forehead and is struggling with amnesia. But before he can get much of a bearing on what's going on and what's happened to him, He has no memory over the last few days. He is subject to an assassination attempt where he and Sienna Brooks just manage to escape their lives. And it turns out that Robert Langdon is in possession of a strange biohazard canister, which upon opening up finds a, what is referred to as a Faraday pointer, I believe, a small projector which shows an image of Dante's Circles of Hell. And so begins... So it doesn't point at Faraday at all? Sadly, no. And it's, it's very insistent on it. I don't know, the term Faraday pointer is thrown out quite a lot in this one. I think it must have been one of those terms that Dan Brown picked up and likes, so he's going to use it quite a lot. Uh, because of the fact it actually that, means. Yes. <laughs> this kicks off the start of another Easter egg hunting phenomenon of the likes of the previous films, such as Angels and Demons and The Da Vinci Code, but this time we're looking at... Uh, artistic items related to Dante's 
Inferno and such like. So I think if you have seen or have heard about those previous films, you know what to expect. If you're one of the few neophytes who somehow have managed to avoid these films, then I probably recommend that you keep on doing that. Uh, this is exactly what you would expect from having seen the other two, as Dan Brown's trademark terrible, terrible dialogue, nonsensical plot twists continually being thrown at you. Things I suppose you might see, might know coming, if you have an incredibly detailed knowledge of 18th, 19th century paintings and that sort of thing. Uh, however, uh, for modern audiences with uh, little or no interest in that kind of thing, it's just going through the motions and uh, throwing yet more twists at you as it goes along. There's the usual games of exactly who can you trust as this goes on, this time rather than it being a, an agency such as the church that you're not supposed to trust, and this time it's the World Health Organization, because why not <laughs> make those guys the villains? It's someone else room to rebel against, and if you if you know the, the general plot of the, the previous films, you know what to expect. Uh, he'll be double-crossed, you can never really tell who's playing on what side, but of course, <laughs> spoilers, uh, they're going to win out in the end. Not that there was ever really much of a, a doubt about the outcome of this. The MacGuffin that they're chasing after at the end of this film happens to be a virus that Zobrist has created. Uh, he's one of these people who thinks the overpopulation of the Earth is going to prompt a major ecological disaster, and so he's developed a virus to kill half the population of the planet. Obviously that's not going to happen in this film, so yes, <laughs> kind of undercuts its uh, dramatic potential there. As with the other films, it's not any good, but it's about as good as you could make it. Um, <laughs> Ron Howard, for his faults, knows how to kind of keep this kind of thing ticking along, um, and Tom Hanks, being Tom Hanks, has a minimum level of watchability to everything that he's in. Um, so this is actually not so disappointing a film to watch, as you might expect. Um, the supporting cast also tends to do pretty well. I wish there was a little bit more of a nod and a wink being given to how ridiculous the source material is. Everyone seems to be treating this mostly seriously, with the exception of Irfan Khan's character, who is suitably ludicrous and. Uh, it seems to be the only one that's aware of the, the nonsense that he's in and the plays it according to, accordingly, so he was definitely the standout for me. It is a film that is of no use whatsoever. Um, it is not recommended to anyone. If for some reason you like the, the source material or you just want some kind of page-turning thriller, I suppose this fills that hole, but there's certainly far better things you could be watching and spending your time on. Exactly what you expect from a film based on a Dan Brown novel, both good and bad mainly bad yes um i think I, I would veer more towards it being bad i saw the da vinci code i stopped over the da vinci code because i don't hate myself and i just can't bring myself to watch anything else based on dan brown and and i'm sure in the hands of a capable filmmaker like ron howard it simply cannot possibly be as bad as the books no, um, surely not. And again, because I don't hate myself, I've not read the books because I've um, <laughs> been told by people who I trust who foolishly did read the books and enough quotes and Stuart Lee, who I can never think of Dan Brown without <laughs> thinking of and his uh, conjectured line of the famous man looked at the red cup. <laughs> it's put me off Dan Brown forever because the original film was ridiculous. That said, I can see part of the appeal of just like the... The chase of something and the mystery. I mean, it's dross, but I can see why it could be entertaining, dross. Yeah. But I just, I just cannot bring myself to watch a film based on a book by a man who will write lines like, only those with a keen eye would notice his 14 carat gold bishop's ring with purple amethyst, large diamonds, and hand tooled mitre crozier applique. 
I can't. I don't want to give him any business, basically. <laughs> not that he's going to care. He already has all the money. But no, Dan Brown is not for me. So I think I will avoid this one. Because unlike you, I don't hate myself. What are you doing, Scott? Oh, shall we move on to something sourced from uh, a novel that is probably far more respected by you? Because I can't imagine it would be less respected, uh, the BFG. Yes, let us move on to the BFG then. Yes. Despite selling in the hundreds of millions and having been favourites amongst children for decades, the books of the inimitable Roald Dahl have had mixed, and usually poor, results when being translated to the screen. The inexplicably popular Gene Wilder version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory being a prime example. So can Steven Spielberg succeed in successfully bringing a compelling Dalian world to the mainstream screen where most others have failed? Look away now if you don't want to know the results. Expectations one, Spielberg nil. So no, no he can't. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start, according to that nun who would not stop singing. It's London, 1851. Well, despite actually being set in the 1980s, as per the book, what with all of the helicopters and whatnot that appear later, it very much looks like Dickensian London. This is the first of what will turn out to be many odd choices that are to the film's detriment. In a decidedly Victorian orphanage, young Sophie, played by Ruby Barnhill, can't sleep and is waiting for the witching hour. That magical time of night when all of the humans are asleep and the night belongs to... others. Hearing something outside, Sophie creeps to the window and observes a large shadowy figure in the street, far larger than any human. Making a noise which attracts the figure, she tries to hide, but is suddenly plucked from her open window by a gigantic hand and finds herself hurtling at phenomenal speed along lanes and across deserts until she finally arrives in the land of the giants and is confronted by her kidnapper, the big friendly giant, played by Mark Violence. The BFG, such as he becomes known to her, explains to Sophie that she's now in a very dangerous country, populated by people-eating giants, far larger than he, but that he loves human beings, as he calls them, and that he tries to give children pleasant dreams, rather than, you know, making them his dinner. And he exists instead on a diet of loathsome, foul-smelling vegetables called snozcumbers. Shocked and not a little scared by these revelations, Sophie learns about the BFG's dream-making work and his life while avoiding the dangers of the other giants, and they soon become fast friends. Sophie then concocts a plan to visit the British Queen and convince her of the existence and danger of the other giants and enlist her help in ending the menace. Now, whenever I watch a film adaptation of a novel, I have an inner tension between the part of me that wants as literal and accurate a representation of the book as possible and the more pragmatic part of me that recognises that film and book are different media and one must necessarily be changed to become the other. And for example, the dream-catching scene in the BFG is a good example of where this is done well and sensibly. In the book, dreams live wild in a land of mists and the BFG uses his phenomenally acute hearing to track and capture them. This simply isn't going to work well in a visual medium, so instead this sequence becomes one where the dreams are like living fireworks, fizzing and glowing, and it works well, and frankly looks great. It's well handled. Good. But there are other parts of the film where I am left wondering if Spielberg and his screenwriter, the late Melissa Matheson of E.T. fame, even read the book at all. If they did, they sorely missed the point. While the names of the giants, 
flesh lump eater, blood bottler, child chewer, etc. remain, they aren't dwelt upon, and in Spielberg's BFG, the tendency of the giants to eat people is relegated almost to an unpleasant character trait, like, I don't know, a propensity to pick one's nose in public, rather than the horrific thing which it ought to be. In the book, Dal revels in the giants' favoured victims. When it's warm, people from Chile are favoured. Human beings from Labrador taste like dogs. And, in an example of the author's signature wordplay, the blood bottler informs the BFG how he's off to Baghdad to Baghdad mum and the baby. Dal's work is full of such things. Malice, nastiness and a gleeful ghoulishness, all of which kids love and which makes Dal, Dal. To leave this out, particularly the ghoulishness, is not only to neuter the story, it is also, simply, unforgivable. The BFG himself is a mixed bag, with a design based on the famous, and still illustrations of Quentin Blake, he is given life by a motion capture performance from Mark Rylance, who worked so successfully with Spielberg in last year's Bridge of Spies. Rylance adopts a slow, gentle West Country accent for his giant, and there is a true wistfulness and melancholy present in his performance, which adds a note of sadness and death to the character. It's a double-edged sword though, as the measured, quiet speech tends towards the soporific at times, and the BFG's characteristic muddled, malapropism-filled dialogue seems to get lost in the slow-fire delivery. Appearing alongside Rylance is newcomer Barnhill, and while I feel bad about criticising child actors, and I will allow, as with Neil Sethi in The Jungle Book, that it can't be easy to act against so little except green screen, particularly at so young an age, young Ruby is, alas, terrible. <laughs> In action terms, it's also a mixed bag. There are large lulls, for example, a sequence which calls to mind Gulliver's Travels, The Land of the Giants, or perhaps most closely The Borrowers, all. Wow, isn't it weird to see these gigantic everyday things like forks and cups that goes on far too long, far too infrequently interspersed with more kinetic scenes like the dream chasing or the BFGs bullying by the other giants which is in fact is the closest his human-eating kin actually get to menacing. Things pick up considerably when Penelope Wilton is introduced as the Queen, and it's a long time since I found fart jokes so entertaining. But while the final act is an improvement, it's too little too late. Put all of this together in a two-hour film where, really, not an awful lot happens, and it is impossible for me to recommend this. Alas, another missed opportunity to bring Dal to the big screen. And the worst for me, as this was by far my favourite role Dal book as a kid. It seems that still only Tim Burton approaches really getting the great author. One to avoid this, unfortunately. That's a pity. There's never really enough uh, movies for kids that try and scare them. I think that's really what they, what they want most of the time. Yeah. Kids like macabre stuff for the most part, as long as it's not too <laughs> explicitly unsettling. And uh, yeah, this seems another missed opportunity. Yeah, we were, we're both very fond of like as Coraline. Yes. Again, because it's something that unsettles kids. And it's not even so much unsettling in the BFG, I think. It's, it's the word I use is ghoulishness that was chosen deliberately. Uh, maybe sometimes gruesome as well. Mm. But that's the thing. The, it's a children's book where characters take time to determine the different flavour of human beings. <laughs> right? I mean, they, they do talk about that in the, I think, Mexicans are spicy and 
yeah, people from Chile are good in hot weather because they're chilly, they're cold and things like that. And <laughs> it's just absolutely gleeful in the book and it's so memorable. And it's so absent though, conspicuously absent in this film because I don't know whether Spielberg himself is afraid of that or whether it's actually marketed to adults or parents, not children themselves, who would find that thing somewhat squeamish. But it's, I do think it's Spielberg, he's got such a weakness for sentimentality mm. that it tends to push everything else out. And this is one of the most egregious examples in years. So, yes, it's somebody else who just doesn't seem to understand why Roald Dahl books sold so many. <laughs> I am disappointed. Right, uh, so next up is The Girl on the Train, an adaptation of a, another best-selling novel that I'd never heard of until it appeared in cinemas. Uh, I really must keep up to my, with my uh, trashy novels. This is the tale of Rachel, played by Emily Blunt, who is uh, a divorcee who is struggling with her life post-divorce. Uh, every day she takes the train past her old home and she can quite clearly see the new wife and uh, the child that her her ex-husband has moved on with, well, she's very much struggling to move on with it herself. She tries to alleviate this somewhat by focusing on the house a couple doors down, which features a couple that she believes appear to have a perfect relationship full of loving commitment to each other. This is the house of Megan, played by Hayley Bennett, and her husband, Luke Evans, Scott. It turns out, however, that uh, as with all of these things, none of the main female characters' lives are quite as the others would imagine it. Megan, it turns out, is feeling trapped in this relationship with Scott, who is overly possessive and occasionally violent, and while it does appear for the most part, that uh, the relationship between the ex-husband, Tom, played by Justin Theroux, and Anna, Rebecca Ferguson, is quite happy. There's problems around there as well, largely with Tom's infidelity to, to other, other girls. It seems largely to be a case of a film where Rachel is undergoing a mental breakdown. She's uh, deep in the grasp of alcoholism, and her mental state appears to be deteriorating, uh, particularly to the point where she blacks out uh, one night in a tunnel after supposedly seeing Megan, after which Megan goes missing. And uh, it seems there's at least a chance that Rachel was responsible for the murder. As you, things progress and everyone's mental state unwinds and more truths are uncovered, this turns out that this is very much not as clear-cut a case as you might expect, and it continues on with various revelations that, uh, and twists and turns that attempt to keep an audience interested with middling to fair results, I think it's fair to say. When I was watching this film, I had no real preconceptions going into it, I'd not heard anything about it in particular, but it was a well-regarded enough thriller that I thought I'd give it a chance, and for a while it seems like it's going for a sort of a tone reminiscent of Gone Girl from a few years back, mm -hmm. the excellent David Fincher film. Unfortunately, it's Gone Girl with all the interesting bits, all the wit, all the humour, <laughs> and all the actual things that made Gone Girl a good film taken out, and just the kind of the, the bare essentials of a Commodore Garden thriller. And it's not all that thrilling, if I'm honest with you. The early going is quite tedious. Admittedly, it was a long day, but I did feel myself nodding off at various <laughs> points in it. It's just not all that interesting a film. It's nice to see movies like this where there's a number of strong characters being written for women to show up on the screen. They're, they're very certainly the, the main focus of this film and the, the men folk are almost afterthoughts. <laughs> That's nice to see. It would be nice if all the characters weren't, you know, 
psychopathic bunny <laughs> boilers for the most part. It does become a bit more complicated at the end. It tries to have its cake and eat it, but for the most part, it's playing quite close to some stereotypes that I'd hoped we'd have got, got beyond by this point. And yes, in general, it's just not all that interesting. It's fine. It's perfectly acceptable. And if you're a big fan of the book, I suppose this is a, a reasonable adaptation. But as a film, and certainly as someone who's not seen the original work, it's just not that great. It's fine. I don't regret having gone to see it, but there are certainly far more worthy uh, options for your entertainment. And this is, at best, a a reasonable adaptation of a novel, uh, which is a so seems to be a, a recurring theme of tonight's show. Um, <laughs> what, what was the last really good adaptation of a, a novel that we see on screen? Oh, that's a good question. Was Bridge of Spies coming from something? Uh, uh, that's a good question. Was that a book first? Bridge of Spies that's... may have been. Maybe um, A Most Wanted Man. Yes, that's not a bad shout. Bridge of Spies is a book, so yes, maybe that too. Yeah, but they're, they're thin on the ground. Uh, you, you would expect there to be more. It used to be a, a very common a route for adaptation, but I guess now everyone's either busy adapting comic books or remaking old films i guess it's not I not so know. common I, I think maybe if we were thought about it, it'd be more because you mentioned gone girl gone girl's one based on a book and that's not so a couple of years though was that 2013 yes i know there's a lot of good books out there <laughs> I, I hear this through the whispers in the wind but uh yeah um at any rate uh the girl on the train is an adequate film and nothing more yes not terrible <laughs> not great it's a shame that uh, Justin Theroux doesn't get more work. Uh, I do like seeing him. Uh, the cast all do quite well. Uh, nothing particularly bad to say about any of them, but I think they're somewhat underserved by the material. It's one of these films that that I think has the has the tone and cadence of something that's trying to be quite impactful and important, yeah, but just doesn't pull it off. It, it doesn't have the... It, it is all mouth and no trousers. <laughs> as the phrase would go. Yes, a, a bit of a disappointment. It's certainly one that you can happily skip over. Drew then, do you want to give us a, a look at the Red Turtle Aka the Homing Shell, which I think is a weapon from Mario Kart. On screen, the familiar outline of Forest Troll Totoro appears, but behind him is not the usual soothing blue, but rather red. What's going on? What is in fact going on is Studio Ghibli's first ever international co-production and the first feature from British-based Dutch animator Michael Dudok de Witt. Dudok de Witt's 2000 Oscar and BAFTA-winning short Father and Daughter caught the eye of Japanese legends Miyazaki Hayo and Takahata Isao, who approached him about producing a feature-length animation. Not that Dudok de Witt jumped at the chance. Apart from feeling it was too complicated an undertaking, he also thought someone was taking the piss. <laughs> Eventually convinced that the offer was genuine, and crucially being given artistic free reign, as well as support from Takahata, who served as the film's artistic producer and the influence of whose animation style can be seen in the finished article, Dudok Duvet began work, and a mere ten years later, The Red Turtle, <laughs> also known as La Tortue Rouge, made its debut at this year's Cannes Film Festival. During a violent storm, a man is washed up onto the beach of a desert island, surrounded by the broken remains of his boat. After recovering from this ordeal, and attending to the immediate necessities of food and drink, the man's thoughts, inevitably, turn to escape, and he begins to construct a raft, but after reaching a certain distance from the island, his craft is destroyed by a mysterious force in the water. Subsequent attempts, in bigger and better rafts, meet the same fate, and the man eventually discovers that he is being prevented from leaving by the giant sea turtle of the title. But why doesn't the turtle want him to leave? And who is this man? We know nothing about him. Good, bad, undeserving, kind. Who knows? 
We are offered but a few hints of his former life as he is tormented by dreams while he tries to escape from his island prison, but hints are all we get. Exerting his fate, the man begins to make a life and a family on the island, after the mysterious appearance of a woman. I won't say any more about the plot, partly to avoid giving away any surprises, and partly because, really, there is little else to say. The plot of the Red Turtle is very slight indeed, and wonderfully and intentionally open to interpretation, though, for the very same reasons, equally open to inducing restlessness in certain viewers, even though this film only runs for a slender 80 minutes. The key, I feel, to avoid any potential boredom brought on by the lack of a rich narrative, is to be aware of this and approach it in the right mood. The Red Turtle is a tone poem, and if you allow yourself to be swept up in it, to go with the flow, it is deeply fulfilling and rewarding. To aid in this, you simply have to allow yourself to be lost in the beguiling animation, its simple yet expressive characters, and its utterly beautiful use of chiaroscuro, light and shade to you and me. Such endeavours also given support by wonderful sound design by Parisian outfit Peace Rouge and a moving score by Laurent Perez del Mar. Though if I have a complaint with this film, it is that, at times, it could be argued that the score is too prescriptive, and there is not one word of dialogue. There is a tranquility to this film, yet also moments of drama, tension, and, thanks to particularly the Greek chorus of crabs, humour. It is enigmatic, and in avoiding imposing any strict meaning on it, Dudok Devet ensures that we can each take our own meaning from it. Lovely stuff. I've not seen this film, but I'm just looking at the stills from it, and it looks absolutely gorgeous. It's so nice. Because the animation style is relatively simple, mm. and it's digitally animated, but some of it's hand-drawn on tablets. Right. And it's a, kind of like a charcoal-style drawing to some of it, particularly like the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Just through it, the, the, the use of light and shadow on it, it's magnificent. It's just it's a beautiful, beautiful film. It's just an absolute joy to watch. See, it's only 80 minutes, but not much happens, which is why if you if you go into this in the wrong frame of mind, you may find it doesn't have enough substance in there. But I think if, if you approach it in the right way, then yes, you, you're really going to get a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I look forward to looking at this one, actually. Mm. Yep, no, that's definitely on my radar. Okay, uh, so we shall close out today with a look at the Free State of Jones. In Britain, we're not taught all that much about the American Civil War, at least that I can remember when I was at school. So while it's surely impossible to know the broad strokes of one of the former colonies' defining events, there's a lot of detail left for us to uncover if we're interested in the UK. One such intriguing detail is told in the supposedly true story of the Free State of Jones, although I feel it necessary to give the usual disclaimer that from a brief bit of fact-checking, there appears to be no good facts to check on most of this film, uh, record-keeping apparently not being a priority in the Free State of Jones. But no one seems to be vociferously denouncing it, at least, so let's just take this on face value. (laughs) It doesn't seem like Newton Knight, played by Matthew McConaughey, has ever been particularly on board with the aims of the South in the Civil War, but he's certainly not once they conscript his terrified, far too young brother into the Battle of Corinth, where he promptly catches a bullet and dies. He deserts and heads back to his family on a poor farm, only to find that Confederate soldiers are confiscating the lion's share of their, and everyone else's, produce as tax in order to feed their war machine. This offends Knight's sensibilities, who believes you should have the right to the produce of your own land, and he starts to rebel against this. 
He successfully stands the tax collectors off, but as a known deserter, he's forced to flee to the relative safety of the swamps, where no cavalryman dares to tread, or perhaps more accurately, their horses don't. There he meets with Moses, Maharshala Ali, and a small contingent of runaway slaves, whom he quickly bonds with. He was guided to safety in part by Rachel, played by Gugu Mbatha Raw, a slave who had previously cared for and perhaps saved his child's life with the town's doctor called away in war duty. Rachel and Knight also form a relationship, eventually marrying, or as close as was possible to in the dark ages of race relations. With the war becoming more brutal, this increases both the number of deserters finding their way to the swamps and the Confederate tax collector's demands, prompting Knight and his company of irregulars to take a more active role in defending the poor farmers from the Confederate bully boys, in turn drawing more attention from the army and so on and so forth. Now, the story doesn't end with the Civil War, instead showing select events during the Reconstruction, and is also intercut with a court case of Knight's great-great-great-grandson, which shows that the Dark Ages of race relations lasted a lot longer than anyone would think possible in the South. Now, to an extent it's white saviour narrative by the numbers, but I feel a little more comfortable with this when, firstly, it's at least supposed to be a reflection of what actually happened, and secondly, Particularly in the Reconstruction era, Moses is shown as fulfilling more of a leadership role than Knight does, at least until his murder. That aside, I watched most of the first 90 minutes or so of Free State of Jones in quiet amusement at the generally poor regard in which this is critically held, and at its box office belly flop. McConaughey cuts an effective and sympathetic character, and the early battle scenes are really effectively handled. Knight's an interesting and compelling character, and he forges interesting relationships with Rachel and Moses. It all seemed to be going quite swimmingly. But it's the final stretches where it starts to flounder, in ways I suppose constricted by reality. There's no definite end point for Knight or any of the ideals that he's fighting for. This does rather mean that the narrative gets away from the film. It's doing a reasonable enough job of truncating the Civil War period while still giving what feels at least to be a reasonable accounting of it. But after the South surrender, it just turns into the series of vignettes strewn throughout the years and each somehow more depressing than the last. It all feels a little hectic, a little bit whistle-stop, and a little bit desensitising. It tries to pack in quite a lot into a very small space of time, and it rather dilutes the message rather than concentrating it. It's an unfocused and rather anticlimactic end, and that's particularly annoying, given the good work that it does earlier on. It just fizzles out and stops, rather than hitting an obvious end. I suppose that reflects the facts on the ground race relations being something of a work in progress to put it mildly even today, but that does not help its case as a film. By no means a bad film, but it feels rather like a missed opportunity. Yes, I can see that a little. I actually wasn't aware of any negative press about it. I just had the opportunity to see it and thought that looked interesting and for the most part greatly enjoyed it. I would agree with what you said at the end, Scott, that it spends so long on the war portion of it that the last post-war the reconstruction period it feels like almost like an afterthought we need to cover this yeah and so that's given quite short shrift unfortunately the other there are two problems have with one was structural which was that the part of the film is presented in sort of a flash forward i guess really with his descendant in a court case for being a person with black blood who's marrying a white woman and that was illegal because it took a hundred years for that war to change anything which people tend to forget yeah and it's just it's not a useful device at all i think it detracted from the film rather than added 
Um, it just felt artificial yeah. and unnecessary. I mean, everything that was included in those scenes in the courthouse in the 1950s or 1960s mm. could have been covered in a three-sentence coda at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah plus it happened so infrequently. Yes, yes it's almost like they remembered to go back to it. Then. Yeah, like two hours, 20 minutes of the film, and I kept forgetting why it flashed back mm-hmm. to this bit or forward to, to this bit. It's it seems it's a strange structural decision. Yeah, so that felt a bit out of place. The rest of the story, yes, is quite interesting. I was aware a little of the free state of Jones because I remember it being mentioned in Ken Burns' excellent American Civil War documentary. And mm-hmm. word to the wise, if you've not seen Ken Burns' excellent American Civil War documentary, watch Ken Burns' excellent American Civil War documentary because it's excellent. Helped in no small part by David McCulloch's voice, which is just incredibly appealing to listen to, but it's a superb documentary and covers um, a lot of the material here, which is useful. The only other real issue I had with it, the flash-forward thing and the rushed ending aside, is that while clearly Matthew McConaughey's character, upstanding guy, helping the cause of race relations in the south of the United States, it's still a film about freeing slaves and disenfranchised blacks in America getting their own destiny. It's still a film about that where the hero's the white man. And that rankles a little. I mean, again, necessarily so because of the story. But it's like, oh, here we go again. The hero's the white man. Okay. Mm. But at least um, with more significant black characters than this film might have had even, say, 20 years ago. That's it. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Interesting people. Good performances. It's not 12 Years a Slave. It's not as compelling a film as that is, although it just inevitably brings up comparison to that being set in a similar time period and with similar issues and it just been a couple of years ago very much worth watching it is more proof that Matthew McConaughey spent 20 years pretending he couldn't act and woke up one morning and goes on board of that I'll show you how I can do it now (laughs) why he spent so long doing that I have no idea I'd love to see a film at some point in the future of the McConaughey epiphany (laughs) definitely worth catching up on Interesting. Yeah, I don't want to sound too negative on it. It's, uh, I think it maintained uh, certainly at least an hour and 40 to 50 minutes really effectively. And yeah. those early doors war scenes are amazing. I thought they were really well handled. It is just the final sort of half an hour, 40 minutes where it kind of falls apart a little bit, but it's certainly by no means bad enough over that stretch, even in my estimation, to make it not worth watching the two hours-ish of good stuff that's there. So Yeah, yeah it's not for me even that the end wasn't good. And the content of the end is interesting, and it's the balance, I think. It's so front-loaded mm. with all the Civil War stuff, and that's so entertaining. Then at the end, it's like, really, we probably need another hour to tell you all the rest of this yeah, stuff, but yeah. we don't have that, let's just stick it in 20 minutes. And that's what it feels like. Yeah, it feels very much like this would be a, a film that would be enhanced by having a part one and a part two. Yeah, yeah very uh, much so. There seems still to be quite a lot of interesting stuff that could be covered as part of this. I mean, even the Civil War stuff, I think it does a better job of hiding how much it's skipping in that. But I mean, I, I was assuming this would be like a six-month period towards the tail end of the Civil War, but it's not. It happened almost at the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's actually quite a lot of time covered in this film, and it could really do, I think, with being a little bit more focused, you could have had a uh, certainly one part entirely focused on the Civil War that would still be even longer than this, and one part focused on Reconstruction stuff, and I think that would perhaps hold it better, but I don't know. Maybe that's just something we go off and read about rather than demand that you go off and make a film about it. I once again, I would say 
watch Ken Burns' um, him, wonderful American Civil War documentary. <laughs> yeah. But looking at this, both the sort of the level of production it has, its budget, and even the actors, Conaghy's well-known, but he's not somebody that's going to command top dollar. Mm. It feels like, and particularly in this current renaissance of really, really high-quality TV, it feels like it should be in an HBO miniseries. Yeah. And I think yeah. that would have properly done it justice. There's nothing about this film um, which really says cinema in particular to me. But if this mm. was maybe six parts on HBO or something, maybe even four, but just to give them a bit more room to tell the story a bit more fully, then it would have been yeah. perfect. Yeah. I'd maybe argue those battle scenes at the start deserve a, a cinema screen, but I'd, I would happily trade those, what, five minutes or so of, of actual uh, foreground stuff for another uh, three to four hours of this stuff spread over a miniseries. Yeah, I think you're right, and that's a good call. And I would say of all the stuff we've spoken about on this podcast, it's probably the best film I've seen in them. Um, yes, um, The Red Turtle's better, but different. It's not really worth comparing, and you've not seen that, so... yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a completely different beast, so I don't think it's it's wise to try and compare them. But yes, as opposed to, for instance, the other two films that I spoke about, Moan, not a massive disappointment, which is nice. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of this uh, episode. You'll note that Craig had to leave us a little bit early to deal with a small baby-related emergency, so I'm sure he'll happily join us in saying goodbye. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on the Twitters at FudsOnFilm, on Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm, or email us. And I'd like to thank Blake Bond, who emailed in. He's of the I'm the Host podcast, which is actually very well worth listening to. He was gave us a, a bit of some pointers after our 70s horror retrospective. He gave us actually a nice little list for the other idea that we had for covering some kind of horror films, which was not garbage horror films made since the year 2000, because we could by ourselves couldn't really come up with much of a list of them. And yes, but his is... list has more than none in it, so I, I, I for <laughs> disagree. Thanks very much for taking the time to write into us. It's very much appreciated, and we will, I think, look at something like this for probably is not going to be for our next uh, horror podcast for at least another year. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it for Halloween next year. I, I was pretty sure Craig and I both wanted to make it another lifetime, Scott. But... Life's cheap round out here. <laughs> I do know at one point he, he does mention that he's not seen uh, Antichrist from 2009. We have. It's garbage. Yes. Don't, don't, don't watch Antichrist. It, um, it, it is the worst of things. <laughs> yes, I, I will never forgive it for making me uh, run from a film that was actually enjoying from the Edinburgh Film Festival as I missed the last 20 minutes of uh, something and had to go off and see Antichrist cover it for our podcast in the last, uh, what was that, yeah, the 2009 Edinburgh Film Festival, I assume. And yeah, it's a, yes. it's a dumpster fire. Really? I am desperate to actually find a good horror film. I'm just still waiting. So yes, uh, if anyone else would like to get in touch, we'd be more than happy to hear your thoughts. Come and argue with us on Twitter if you like. Uh, we will be back on the 1st of November with a look at some modern day films that have been filmed in black and white. And until that time... I've been your host, Scott Morris, and I bid you a fond farewell, and I'm sure that my good friend Drew Tavendale does too. Mm, yeah, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>